0: Amen, amen. Second Chronicles 7, verse 14. This is this is the word of the Lord. It says, If my people, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, I will forgive their sin and i will heal their land if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways then i will hear from heaven i will forgive their sin and i will heal their land this is the word of the lord out of second chronicles chapter seven. You know, one of my favorite moments of every year is Christmas morning. Uh, We've got three boys and they're still kind of all in that like magical phase of Christmas where they're like way too like excited about Christmas. And so a true story this year, our first son came in at 3 a.m. on Christmas morning And he's like, it's Christmas. I saw the presents are already out there. Can we go open them? And I'm like, not a chance. Like, not until the sun comes up when we start opening presents. And literally for like the next 20 minutes or for the next three hours, every 20 minutes, the boys are coming in. Hey, is it time yet? Is it time yet? Is it time yet? So Christmas is kind of one of those magical moments. And around our house, uh, they're still in that phase where they ask for toys. You know, they're not like us where they're asking for gift cards and cash. You know, they want toys. And so there's that magical moment where they're opening up the presents and they see the front of that box with the toy that they've been asking for. And I love the front of the box because the front of the box is kind of this, this moment of familial euphoria. You know, like on the front of the box is the vision of what you want to experience. It's like pleasure, it's joy, it's happiness, it's that toy that they've been waiting for, but not just the toy, that toy is being played with by the perfect photogenic family in the perfect photogenic moment, just experiencing life. It's like the thing that they long for on the front of the box is the vision of what they want. But then you open up the inside of the box and the inside of the box, is a total different story. Like like you open up the box and there's a thousand little pieces that are not adequately marked and numbered that were manufactured by the devil himself. And they've been put in this little box and the instruction sheet comes out. And the only thing it should say is, hey, dad, this is going to ruin your day. Like this is, this is going to ruin the rest of your day. <laughs> like trying to put this together. So you're, you pull out all the inside of the box and you're trying to get it together as the kid has already moved on to the next package to unwrap and the next front of the box. And And here's what I was reminded of on Christmas morning as I was sitting there is, is the front of the box, the joy that you see there is absolutely possible. But in order to get to the front of the box, you have to go through the inside. And the inside is often a little messier and more complicated than we wanted it to be. You see this all throughout Christian history, these moments where God shows up and you catch a vision. It's that front of the box moment. He shows up in Nineveh and God brings Nineveh to repentance on its knees. And it's the thing that we all long for. It's what you see in Acts chapter two when the revival breaks out on the day of Pentecost. It's that front-of-the-box moment. It's what happens when you read the stories about the Welsh Revival or the Great Awakenings or what took place in Manhattan in the 1850s or what took place in the city of Toronto in the 1990s. There are these moments where you get these front-of-the-box glimpses of what God can do in a city, a culture, a church, a home. And there's something that stirs in us, and we go, man, we want that. But every time you begin to get into the story, any time you begin opening up the packet, the stuff on the inside sometimes is a little bit more complicated and messy than the front of the box appeared. But I want you to hear me on this. Just because the inside is messy, it does not mean the front is not true. Just because the inside is messy, it doesn't mean the front of the box isn't true. And I love this because There's this moment in 2 Chronicles 7. Here's the context. There's a man named Solomon. His dad was a guy named David who was king. He was the guy that killed Goliath, if you remember that story from VBS. he grows up to become a king, and David was a complicated man that was used by God in unbelievable ways. And his son Solomon becomes king, and Solomon, like his father, was a complicated guy. But in the early part of his rule, like the longing passion of his heart was that his country would come to know the presence of God on a personal basis. So he had this passion to see his country come to know God personally. And that passion led him to prepare the temple. He built this place where people could connect with God. And it's there where that passion led to the preparation that all of a sudden he found himself in this moment of prayer. And he said, God, would you fill that which has been prepared? And Solomon cries out to God. And I love this moment in 2 Chronicles seven fourteen. It's God's response to Solomon's passion and Solomon's preparation and Solomon's prayer, this is what the Lord says. He says, okay, Solomon, if my people who are called by my name would humble themselves and pray, if they would seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. He says, that's what I wanna do. That's the front of the box. And I wanna actually kind of pull this verse apart. I wanna start at the end because the end of the verse is the front of the box vision. There's kind of three things that I want you to see. And we don't have time to unpack it all, but I just want you to see what it is that God desires. At the end of the verse, he says, if you'll do those things, he says, this is what, I do, what I'll do. He says, number one, I will give you my undivided attention. He says, I will hear from heaven. And the word that's used there in the original language is not just talking about hearing somebody audibly. That, that would be a miracle in and of itself. But it's talking about a responsiveness to that which has been heard. Does that make sense? God's not just saying, hey, I'll audibly hear you. He says, I will audibly hear you and I will respond to that which I've heard. I was trying to get our boys sitting, and I were sitting at the breakfast table this week and we were trying to help them understand prayer. And, And one of my sons said, dad, prayer is so weird. I don't get it. And I'm like, I'm right there with you. It's weird, I don't get it. I mean, like we, we like talk into the air and this invisible God who created Mount Everest and the Pacific Ocean, who made you and knows you, that God is gonna somehow hear your little voice and answer it, don't, I don't get it. It makes no sense logically. And so I was trying to explain it to my boys. I said, okay, just imagine, you know, our neighbor Larry, who lives across the street. What if in his backyard, there was a little tiny ant? And every time that ant spoke your name, you could hear it. Like, what if you could hear that little ant voice? Michael! Jack! Judah! I'm like, it'd be a miracle if you could hear that little ant's voice in the backyard of our our neighbor. But even more so, like, what if you couldn't just hear it? What if you responded to that which you heard? I'm like, wouldn't that be insane? I go, but that's the promise of God. Even more so. Like, he hears our little ant voices. And it's not just the miracle of him hearing the voice. He says, he says the front of the box moment for, for you, what I want you to experience is I want you to know that you have my attention, that I pay attention, that I respond. That's what's on the front of the box. Number one is God's attentiveness to your prayers. But he keeps going. He says, if you do this, he says, I'll hear from heaven. Number two, he says, and I'll forgive your sin. I'll forgive your sin. It's not just that you have his attention. It's that you have his forgiveness. I think sometimes we think of the word forgiveness and we think about just the emotional relief that comes from a guiltless conscience. And that's a part of forgiveness, but forgiveness is so much more practical than that. Forgiveness means to literally be pardoned of your offenses, to be set free from the thing that you owe. Sydney and I were on a date not too long ago, and we're sitting there, and it's time to pay for the check, you know, and so I asked the waitress for the check, and she says, somebody already picked up the tab, and I thought, man, I wish I would've gotten the filet, like, you know, <laughs> I, 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 I didn't know that's how that's gonna go down, I would've gone bigger, you know, <laughs> babysitting's expensive, and so they, they, they said, hey, it's, it's been paid for, and so we got to walk out of their restaurant that night free of charge, why was it free of charge? Because somebody stuck around to pay the price, One day you're gonna stand before a holy God. That's what the scriptures point to. And he knows every sin you've committed. He knows your struggle with pornography. He knows that you lie when it's convenient. He knows that you gossip to make yourself look better. He knows that you're filled with pride. He knows that you use the name of Jesus to get what you want. He knows every sin. And in Christ, in Christ, Jesus pays the bill so you can walk free of charge. That's the front of the box. The front of the box is that you have God's full attention. The front of the box is that you have unlimited forgiveness. And the front of the box, number three, is that he brings healing to the land that you're in. God says, I'm not just interested in getting the church in order. He says, but I wanna redeem the city in which you find yourself. And we'll talk about this more in a few moments, but here's what you see so often when the culture is a mess. Hear me on this. When the culture is a mess, it's often because the church is unrepentant. That the problem out there so often originates in here. And I love what God says here to Solomon. Solomon says, God, I wanna see you move. And he says, here's the front of the box. Here's what I want you to experience. I want you to experience my total attentiveness. I want you to experience the freedom that comes with forgiveness through the life of Jesus Christ. And I want you to experience the transformation, the healing of the city to which I've called you. That's the front of the box. Now the question is, what is on the inside? And you go back to to the first part of the verse and there's just kind of four words that I wanna give you to maybe kind of help us get our minds around this. And we don't have time to deep dive all four of these words. But I love the way this starts. Look back at the beginning of verse 14. He says, if my people... If my people, and he gives us a few words here, he's gonna say, if my people would would embrace their identity, if they would choose humility, if they would seek intimacy, and if they would walk in repentance, then I'll give you the front of the box. If you'll embrace your identity, if you will choose humility, if you will seek intimacy, and if you will walk in repentance, then I'll give you the front of the box. Let's start with identity. Look at the first part of it. He says, if my people who are called by my name the truest thing about you is not what you do for work or what you do in the music industry or the color of your skin or where you've come from. The truest thing about you, the truest thing about you is that you were dreamt up by, in the heart of God, created by the hands of God, and that he's got something for you. It's the truest thing about you is that you belong to God. But it's not just that you belong to God. It literally means, it literally means that, that your life is not your own. And so it's not up to you to go, okay, what do I want to do with my life? The the first question should be, God, you've put me on this earth, this little spinning mud ball called earth. You've put me here. Why have you put me here? Because you belong to God. Your life is not your own. But it's not just that you belong to God. It's that our identity to God as Father means all of a sudden we have sisters, we have brothers. And this thing that we're doing in the city right now, this call to unity It's not a PR move. It's not just something fun. It's a whole lot of work, in fact. And the reason we're doing that is because unity is not a nicety. It's a necessity to see the power of God come in his kingdom. And our witness to the realness of Jesus is directly connected to whether or not we will walk in our identity as his children with our brothers and sisters here in the city. And so if we want to rob the kingdom of God of its power, let's just keep walking as individuals. He says, if my people who are called by my name, that's a statement of identity. He says, if you want what's on the front of the box, you pull out the inside, the first thing that comes out is identity. Number two, the next thing that comes out of the inside of the box is not just identity, it's the choice to walk in humility. He says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray. In the Old Testament, this call to humble yourself, it was almost always connected to fasting, it was this choice to deliberately, for a season, empty yourself of the temporary so you could take hold of the eternal. Fasting is, is that moment where we let go of things so that God can recalibrate the taste buds of our soul to know God better. It's there when we humble ourselves that we come face to face with our identity again. We begin to seek God in, in brand new ways. We call on his name. We, we, we seek his face in humility. One of my good friends, he recently moved here from Atlanta. And last week he got a call from one of his friends who still lives in Atlanta. And her son is 13 years old and he had met somebody online and went to meet up with this person turned out not to be the person that he thought it was. They they took him started coming up to Nashville. She was tracking his phone. That's how they were trying to find him. The story turns out really good. They found the boy. He's okay. Everything has worked itself out. But my friend was telling me the story this past week. And he said, Dave, can you imagine how crazy it would have been? I was talking to her. She was driving from Atlanta to Nashville. He said, can you imagine how crazy it would be if in that moment I just said, hey, when you're passing through Chattanooga, there's this restaurant there that you've really got to check out. It's the best restaurant. You got to stop. Best Yelp reviews. Like, you got to check it out. He says, there are moments in life where all of a sudden your agenda is focused on something so big that food becomes trivial. I just wondered what it would be like for the Lord. You know, like so many of us, guys, we, we worship at the, the altar of comfort and entertainment and pleasure. And for a season, we're just saying, okay, God, we wanna not just step into our identity, but we wanna walk in humility. We wanna empty ourselves, Lord. We wanna empty ourselves so that we can come around your agenda as we help you seek your lost kids here in the city. He says, I wanna give you the front of the box, my attentiveness, your forgiveness, the healing of your land. He says, but you have to pull out the inside the start of the identity. It comes in humility. Number three, he says, and it continues as you seek intimacy. If my people who are called by my name would humble themselves and pray and seek my face. We're gonna turn, we're gonna dig into that a little bit more next week, this idea of seeking the face of God. But what God is saying here is he says, you come to me not because of what I'll do for you. You come to me for who I am that we come to God in prayer, not because he's useful, we come to God in prayer because he's wonderful. And being with, the, with God is the reward of prayer. That's the reward. You know, uh, or, over the break, uh, over Christmas break, my three boys were taking a nap and one of my sons woke up early from nap and I said, hey, do you wanna run an errand with me? Let's go hang out together. We'll go have some fun. And so he gets in the car, and we're going to run this errand and he started asking, hey, dad, what's the fun thing that we're gonna do? And I'm like, hanging out with me as we run the errand... <laughs> That's the fun thing. And he's like, but I don't want that to be the fun thing. I'm like, that's the fun thing. And so we run the errand and we're coming back, and he says, Hey, can we stop it twice daily and get a snack? Because right now that's like the epitome of his existence. Like, you know, like twice daily, get a snack. And I, I said, No, it's almost it's almost dinner time. We're not gonna stop and get a snack. And I'll never forget this. He goes, he goes, oh, if I would have known we weren't gonna get a snack and we're just gonna hang out together, I wouldn't have come. This is a waste of time. <laughs> It was, it was one of those moments, it was just like a glimpse. It was a glimpse of what God must feel on such a bigger level. How often do we come to God and say, God, we want what's in your hand, but we have no interest in what's in your heart? He says, my people, identity, would humble themselves, prayer and fasting, if they'd seek my face, intimacy, last but not least, and if they would turn from their wicked ways. They turn from their wicked ways. This isn't popular to talk about. But revival, revival never comes until the people of God get serious about the things that are keeping us from the glory of God. And he said, he said, if you'll repent, if you'll turn, repentance is not just feeling sorry for the bad things that you've done, Repentance is feeling sorry enough to change, feeling sorry enough to walk in another direction altogether. You know, in our house, we tell our boys, you can wrestle in rough house in the whole house except for one room. The whole house is theirs. They have broken windows. They've knocked holes in the drywall. They've injured themselves beyond you know comprehension. I mean, the whole house, the whole house is your wrestling ring except for this one room. And yet, can you guess with me the one room they only want to wrestle in? It's the one room they can't wrestle in. And so we're always, we've been in the house for two years and it's like constantly, just the same thing. Don't wrestle here, don't wrestle here, don't wrestle here. And there's this moment over the break where Sydney had been on them all morning and I'd been on them all afternoon. And finally I'm like, guys, quit. And one of my sons looked at me and he literally like this, he's eight years old, but he was like a teenager. He's like, dad, we're sorry. (laughs) And I'm like, dude, I, I don't want you to be sorry. I want you to be sorry enough to change. I want you to be sorry enough to change. God is not interested in our emotionalism. God is not interested in your temporary sorrow. God is looking for people that are sorry enough to walk in the change that he's called us to. And I love this, Jesus said, or God says to Solomon, here's the front of the box my attention to your prayers, my forgiveness of your sin and the healing in the land. But in order for you to have that, you must pay attention to this. Identity, humility, intimacy, and repentance. Look back at the first word of verse 14. He says, if my people, if, if, if. If you walk in identity, if you walk in humility, if you walk in intimacy, if you walk in repentance, then I will hear from heaven, then I will forgive your sin, then I will heal your land. And if you do not walk in identity, if you don't walk in humility, if you do not walk in intimacy, if you do not walk in repentance, then I will not. And we hear this sometimes when we go, isn't that legalism? Isn't that works-based theology? And I go, not at all. This this was the message of Jesus. Jesus in Matthew 7, he says, blessed is the person that hears my word and puts it into practice. They're the wise man. But the person who hears this word and does not put it into practice is a fool. Jesus says the, the invitation of God, it's like a prescription. And a prescription that is never filled out and ingested and digested doesn't help anybody. He says, if you want the front of the box, then you have to walk in identity, humility, intimacy, and repentance. And then we leave all of the stuff up to God. But the reality is, as we begin to pull it out of the box, as we begin to open up these packets, it's not going to be that neat. It's not going to be that easy. It's not going to be that formulaic. But we're daring to believe God in this season with more than 300 churches, we are daring to believe that God is a truth teller. We're daring to believe that as the church seeks intimacy and humility and identity and repentance, that God will do immeasurably more than we can ask or imagine. We're trusting and daring to believe that as, as we lean into this over the next 30 days, starting on January 27th, that something mysterious and miraculous will meet us here in the material. That God will meet us at the intersection, kind of like he met Solomon. Solomon had this passion. Solomon prepared this place. And he said, God, would you come and fill that which has been prepared? And it's the cry of our heart in this season. God, would the mystery and the miraculous meet us here in the material, the flesh and blood, the, the prayers of your people. And God, would you do something in the city of Nashville that only Jesus could receive credit for? And I want to invite you into that. I want to invite you to live as though you're the only person in this city contending on heaven's door for revival. It does not count on you, but I want you to pretend like it does. And I believe as we lean into the Lord like this together, God is going to do immeasurably more than we can ask or imagine. So before we rush off to communion and before we end our day with worship and These things, I want to invite us back into the place of prayer. We've been praying these prayers every day for two months and I believe practice makes perfect. Repetition is helpful. But I'm gonna pray for you. Then I'm gonna invite you to get in groups of two and three and we're gonna pray. And you can go ahead and put the prayer points on the screen. We're gonna pray for unity among the churches. That's our prayer for identity there. We're gonna pray for hunger among the churches. that's, That's our longing That's our longing for humility and intimacy. And we're gonna pray for awareness. That's the longing for repentance. And this morning, we're gonna pray not just for our church, but for the more than 300 churches that right now are doing exactly what we're doing, which is a miracle in and of itself. And so I wanna pray over you, then I'm gonna get you in groups of two and three and let you pray, and then I'll send us to communion in just a moment. Father, I love you. We give you glory and honor and praise. And Jesus, would you alone, would you alone be high and lifted up? Jesus, would we be completely forgettable in this whole process? And Jesus, would you be non-ignorable? And God, would you just touch our hearts as we pray for other churches right now in the name of Jesus, amen.